The first reading is a reading from Proverbs. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Shoal. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O oh sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your ears to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoiced in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we stand. Almighty Father, we ask uh, that you would be very active uh, in our hearts and in our minds uh, as we consider things that are uh, formidable, just formidable ideas, formidable teachings uh, uh, that, are, that are difficult on the one hand, but on the other hand, um, touch uh, uh, some places very deep in our hearts. Um, if what we just confessed in the creed is true... then you are both profoundly challenging and our only safe refuge. Show us that. Amen. We're continuing our series in the book of Proverbs, and, and that reading means we've got some work to do today. And the work that we need to do is uh, we need to talk about uh, marriage and sex and so forth. And here's, here's the deal. Uh, there are a lot of ways that this could go badly. Um, there are a lot of ways to crash and burn on this topic. I sort of feel like um, we need to fly an airplane through a, a deep canyon. And in the, in the effort to avoid that cliff, 
there's a grave danger of slamming into that one over here. Um, and that's for all kinds of reasons. There's just a lot of complexity around these issues. Is there not? Um, for instance, here's just one. There's just lots of them we can talk about. But um, there are a slew of different visions of marriage and sexuality and the meaning of both of them. Am I wrong? And one of the things that, that means is that you can have one person who holds a particular view of marriage and sexuality and the meaning of both of those things over here, and this person can say something, almost anything, that they consider to be reasonable and charitable and not controversial. All the while over here, there's somebody who uh, holds a different view, and that person uh, hears what this person intends to be charitable and reasonable and normal, and this person is deeply offended and just kind of goes, <gasps> And therefore, communication is difficult, right? And then there's another difficulty. Um, all of us, uh, today in particular, uh, we're deeply aware of abuse, are we not? And it's just everywhere right now, just everywhere. And it's heartbreaking. And one of the good things that's happening right now is that there is a, I think, a spirit of advocacy and hopefully a consensus of advocacy that, that we will stand uh, with victims. At the same time, however, there can be a spirit of defensiveness. Don't tell me that anything in my life is, is out of line. And that can be more difficult because it means it makes self-critique very, very difficult. And then there's the elephant in the room, which is to say the church. And I don't need to talk about that, do I? I mean, we know what we're talking about, do we? Um, abuse, hypocrisy. The church is deeply implicated in these things. Grave re need of repentance. So, I could go on with complications. How are we going to do this? Um, well, here's, here's a few things. Um, can I ask first, can we be charitable with each other? Can we try, at least? In particular, can we, in the next few minutes, um, be charitable and courageous at the same time? Here's what, here's what I mean by that. Can we be courageous with respect to ourselves, courageously open to being critiqued in ways we might not generally be open to? Can we be courageous about ourselves, but at the same time, be charitable to others? Courageous about ourselves, charitable towards others. Um, second, uh, I'm going to make you're going to see this. I'm going to make just a huge assumption, just a, a crazy assumption. And the assumption that I'm going to make is um, that I'm going to read this text and I'm going to preach this sermon squarely from the vantage point of um, what I call a classical Christian understanding of marriage and sexuality. It's a huge assumption. But one of the things that, that means is that um, this sermon is, in the first instance, going to be an in-the-family conversation. It's in the first instance going to be aimed at Christians and those who uh, subscribe uh, to, um, um, to uh, classical Christianity. 
And therefore, if you're not a Christian or if you do not uh, hold, if you have deep suspicions about uh, a classical understanding of uh, marriage and sexuality, um, then we're really glad you're here. Some of the things that we're going to say may sound odd, so kind of prepare yourself for that. But what I could could ask you to do is this. Keep in mind that a classical understanding of Christian marriage and sexuality um, only makes sense in the context of the much bigger story about who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished for us. Now, even as I say that, I know that that sounds obscure, but it might make sense as we go along, so just keep your ear open for that. And know this, that our, my intention, our intention, is to open conversation, not shut it down. Okay? All right. Friends, this passage is a warning against adultery. It's a warning against hypocrisy, more deeply. It's a warning against adultery that is then the case study, and what it teaches about adultery applies to um, what I might call toxic sex or sex outside the context of God's consent. And here's what I want to point out. Two things in this passage, uh, and wider than this passage. One, there's a trap to avoid. And secondly, there's a way to live free. Trap to avoid, way to live free. Let me show you. Let's get in. Uh, uh, This passage describes a trap, the trap of adultery, the trap of toxic sex. And here's, here's the way the trap works. There is deceit, which leads to grief, which leads to death. Encouraging, isn't it? Let's get into the trap. Now, every good trap, everybody knows this, uh, begins with bait. Bait is based on deceit. Look at verse 3 and see if you can tell me where you see the bait, the bait that is luring this young man towards adultery. Verse 3 is kind of weird because the the perspective kind of goes into the mind of a young man tempted by adultery, which is disturbing. Um, Verse 3, for the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey. And her speech is smoother than oil. Okay. Pause. Where's the bait? What's the bait for the trap? Now, some of you are looking at me like, are you serious? Is it not a little clear? Jim, do we have to spell this out? Because if we do, there's a problem. Um, Right. I mean, the bait's obvious, right? It's sexiness. You know, it's hot, steamy, sucky sexiness. It's crazy, right? Never thought I'd say that in a a sermon. Um, (laughs) Oh, dear. Um, However, however, not quite, not quite. Why do I say not quite? Well, because if you read further in the text, um, sex appeal, whatever you want to call that, sexual desire, is as much or maybe more a part of um, godly, healthy sex in the context of marriage. For instance, look at verse 18. This is the bit where we all started blushing. Verse 18 says... Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. And suffice it to say, the English translations cover up the innuendos. So when you read that and you think to yourself, is that talking about? The answer is, yeah, it is. And more. Um, I'm not going to talk about it. You can go read the commentaries. Um, it, 
Now, and the funny thing in this poem is that it gets more vividly erotic the more it talks about married sex. Now, why is that important? It's important because one of uh, Proverbs' points, along with a few other books of the Old Testament, is to say that God is not a prude. He exhorts married people to cultivate and enjoy their sexual relationship. Did you know that? Read Song of Songs. Sexiness is not the bait for adultery and toxic sex. What is it? Well, here it is. The bait is a lie. What are you talking about? Well, here it is. Here's the lie. You ready? Here's the lie. God's gifts are not adequate to meet my needs, and therefore I need to take what it is that God has not given. Now, it's never framed that way, but that's the lie. That's the lie that's underneath every single temptation in the Christian life. Go back to the very beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve. Do you remember Adam and Eve? God creates Adam and Eve, puts them in the garden, gives them lots of trees, lots of trees. Eat from all of them, except for one. Don't eat from one, but eat from all the rest of them. And do you remember the story of the snake comes along and leverages that one prohibition? And what the snake says is the snake says, listen, you need... God's gifts are not adequate to your needs. You need to take the one tree that God has not given you. And the reason you need to do that is that God is trying to keep you down. God doesn't, God's um, a tyrant who is oppressing you. He doesn't want you to become like him, but he knows that if you take the thing that he hasn't given you, you'll become like him, so take it. Now, Adam and Eve go for that. But it was a lie. Because if you go back to the beginning of the Bible, what you'll find out is that God had promised already that he had given Adam and Eve everything necessary for them to eventually become like him anyway. But the serpent said, no, God's God's gifts are not adequate to your needs. You need to take something that God has not given you. Now, that's the primal temptation, and it's what's happening here in the heart of this young man tempted by adultery. Because the, reason, the, the reality is that later on in the passage, it's clear that God gives the gift of sex within the context of marriage, and in that context, he wants his people to enjoy it. Like I said, the more you study verse 15 and onward, the more you're going to blush. I was blushing reading the commentaries this week. That's never happened before. The lie and the bait goes like this. You know what? God's gifts and God's path are not going to satisfy me. Again, it's never stated that way. That's always the subtext. It's stated more like this. My situation is different. If if everybody knew my situation, they'd understand. Uh, It's consensual. Uh, I I have certain needs not being met. In this context, they can be met. Nobody's getting hurt because I'm just looking at a screen I just need a break. I just need a release. Now, listen to that rationale. And notice in particular how, do you notice how self-focused it is? Toxic sex or adultery in its various forms is always an attempt to take the pleasure of sex in a context God has not given it, And it's always without the willingness to serve something greater than yourself. It's taking something for me without willingness to serve. Put differently, it it prioritizes my desire 
and it ignores the duties, responsibilities, and commitments that God has built into his design for marriage. And here's the thing. This is where the seeds of abuse start. What are you talking about? That was a switch. Well, here's why I say that. Even in a consensual relationship, even a consensual relationship can be about taking from each other. And the more our sexuality is about taking gifts God has not given, the more self-focused it is, and the more danger we will be to others. Because our heart will increasingly close in on itself and prioritize itself more. That's part of the danger. So, that's a little bit about the bait. It's a deceit. It's a, it's a lie. But then comes grief. Look over at verse 8. Keep your way far from her, meaning um, uh, a potential partner that's willing and consensual. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. That's a terrible image. It's the image of a man uh, who is financially and relationally uh, and even physically ruined. Um, See, you, you take what you want you, that's built on the lie that God's gifts are not enough to satisfy me. But here's, here's, the, here's the terrible thing. If you look at those verses again, can you see how toxic sex steals our capacity to enjoy the deeper joys of life? You see, when you, take, when you enter the trap, you go in following the bait thinking it's going to be great or better than what you're presently living. But what happens is one day all of a sudden you wake up and you realize that it was a lie. It was a fantasy. It was a fantasy. But it, it was a fantasy, but the wreckage is real. And it goes on and on. And friends, I, I have sat with men on the day uh, their toxic sex became public. There is a primal groan, a, a, a screeching, writhing cry. I mean that literally. And it haunts me. Some of the most frightening things I've ever seen in my life. Because, because all of a sudden... You, 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 you see this individual, and, and they say, all of a sudden they realize, I have mortgaged my life. And for what? And I have jettisoned my marriage. And for what? And I have betrayed the trust of my children and my legacy. And for what? And I have lost the ability to even recognize the real thing. And for what? 
And what happens in those moments is that the full weight of the tragedy and the folly crashes down on them. And, and what you're left with is, is this, this powerlessness and this low loneliness and this searing self-loathing of an animal that's been caught in the trap and can't get out. Traps end in death. So does this one. Verse 22. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Okay, now, um, the text says that, that toxic sex leads um, to death. Um, not so much, not necessarily physical death, but, but spiritual death. Why? Um, let me try to explain this as best I know how. Um, God gives his consent in the scriptures uh, to, to sex between a, a husband and wife in the context of marriage. And, and in that plan, they are to give the whole of their lives to each other. Not, not, just, um, not just sex, but the whole of their lives. And part of what that is is that they give themselves to each other over the course of their entire lives as allies. It's an alliance. They are allies aimed at serving each other so that together they can fulfill God's plan for their lives. Put differently, they are allies in the service of Jesus Christ. And in that context, uh, sex in marriage supports self-giving and serving of one another and their children eventually and their wider community. It's all part of the whole. But when we take sex that God has not given, when we take sex to which God has not given consent, um, then what happens is sex then is twisted and it prioritizes self over sacrificial service. And as soon as sex uh, is about taking something for myself, um, that is the first embryonic stage of abuse. And God looks at it and says, no. Not only does God say no to abuse, and do not be, do, do not for a minute imagine God does anything else. Um, abuse deserves hell, for it creates hell. But God also says no to its very first embryonic stage in the heart. Right. Okay. Everybody, breathe. Everybody. There's some of us that as I've been talking, um, the shame in your heart starting to increase. Can I encourage you to take, just breathe. <laughs> okay. And then there are some of us for whom um, a, a conversation starting to roll about why uh, your particular situation doesn't, none of this applies to your particular situation. Can I, if you're in either of those camps, can I encourage you to just take a break from that internal conversation for a few minutes? The reason I say that is because neither shame nor self-justification will make you free. And right now we get to talk about what it is that it can make you free. Wanna? And that means we're going to talk about Jesus. Because friends, and, and if you're trying to self-justify yourself, or if you're feeling shame right now, I want you to feel, please can I say something? Jesus loves you very much. And he wants to make you free.
So um, one of my favorite stories, almost everybody here knows this, is my favorite story, is Jesus um, sits down with a woman at a well in John chapter 4, and he has a conversation. And it's an awkward conversation because um, Jesus is Jesus, and she had a past, right? By the way, we all do. And Jesus knew that she had a past, and he, he just throws it right out there in the conversation. He says, um, listen, I'm aware that you've had five husbands, and the man you're presently with is not your husband. And then there's this awkward moment. But the funny thing is that um, later on when the woman describes Jesus, she doesn't talk about that awkward moment. She, what she's interested in, in is the thing that Jesus offers her, the thing that Jesus gives her. And what Jesus does is he says... Um, if you knew who I was, you would ask of me, and I would give you living water. Now, stay with me. This is important. Living water is an image of a deep and profound and intimate relationship with God that comes through the Holy Spirit. Um, so, water satisfies thirsty people. Living water satisfies the spiritually thirsty. Now, what does this have to do with sex? Everything for the Christian. Everything. Because when it comes to sex, fundamentally, we are not seeking simply physical pleasure, are we? No. More deeply than that, we're seeking intimacy. And intimacy happens when we can be totally vulnerable and totally safe with another person. And that's something that adultery and various types of toxic sex always betrays. Um, There's no vulnerability, there's no real safety, there's the phantom of it, but uh, fundamentally it's about taking taking from one another, and often taking from their families that the two people represent, and the wider community, and above all the purposes of God for both. Now, this woman knew all about being taken from, and Jesus looks at her, and he says, I will give you what you have always sought, but not another empty promise. I'm not another guy that's just taking. I'm going to give. I'm going to give something that you desire. It doesn't have anything to do with sex. I'm not going to use you. But I'm going to give you living water that's going to quench your deeper soul thirst. I'm going to give you rich and safe and an intimate relationship that you were designed for but that you have never known. And that changes everything. Because friends, we are all of us, we know this, we are all of us sexual. But more deeply than that, we are all of us relational. We were made for relationship, and the very very particular relationship that we were made for is we were made to be able to stand before God, totally vulnerable, and yet totally safe, and totally reconciled, despite our formidable past. And until you know that reality, and until you know that relationship, you will never be free from this trap, even if you think you are. And the precious thing is that Jesus Christ, when he was on the cross, what do you think he was doing? Do you know what he was doing? He was climbing in the trap with you. He was climbing in. Didn't have to, he did. Loved to. And he locked himself in the trap and he let us go out. And he suffered the death that we have all of us chosen for ourselves. And he did it so that we could go free. And would to God that we could taste that freedom. Because it's there. But it, it takes courage 
It takes courage for a lot of reasons. On the one hand, it means that we can't listen to that shaming voice in your head saying, I'm too far gone. Oh, they don't understand. I need it too much. It takes courage to stop listening to that voice. And it takes courage to stop listening to the voice saying, if they understood, they know my situation's different for the following reasons and this doesn't apply. You can't listen to that voice either. And it takes great courage to stop listening to those voices. And it means instead, we turn away from those voices and we come before Jesus Christ naked. Rolling out all our shame, not covering it up, not justifying it, not camouflaging it, not painting it, not throwing some cologne over it, but being totally vulnerable before Jesus, trusting him to show you what true safety is. That's the water we're thirsting for. It's the water you're chasing. And what you'll find is that the closer you get to Jesus, the more you'll find that he is the opposite of the trap. The, the trap begins with deceit, but when you come to Jesus Christ, you will know truth and mercy at the same time. The trap gives you grief, but Jesus Christ gives you joy. And the trap ends in death, but the but Jesus Christ comes to you and he says, I will give you living water that will well up within you to eternal life and you will never get to the bottom of that well. See, the lie is that God's gifts are not enough to satisfy you. And freedom begins when you look at Jesus Christ and all that God has given you in Jesus Christ and you realize that that's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a damnable lie. Meaning it's a lie that will damn you. When you see that, you can embrace Jesus. And you can join that sweet, long story of thousands and millions that have gone before you that have felt what it is for chains to break off. I need to say a couple other things. Uh, but nothing I'm going to say makes any difference if you don't embrace Jesus. So if you don't embrace Jesus, don't listen to the rest of it. If you do, then it makes sense, okay? Um, I need to talk to the married people. I need to talk to the single people. Uh, married people, married Christians. Embrace God's gift that he has given you of sex. Um, Christian marriage is an alliance. You are allied together in the service of Jesus Christ. And in that context, God gives you your sexual relationship in part as a way to renew that intimacy, to renew that relationship so that you can serve Christ well together. So that you can serve your children well together, that you can point them to Jesus well together. And therefore, embrace it. And enjoy it. Don't neglect it. Don't try to um, recreate some stupid fantasy. Learn to enjoy the real thing. Be, be tender with each other. Be kind. Treat your husband or your wife in such a way that they can be totally vulnerable with you and totally safe with you. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says um, that uh, uh, Christian husband and wives... Um, belong to each other. 
and therefore um, you're supposed to take care of each other. Take care of each other. And through the inevitable ups and downs that will come, keep your eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ again and again because even your sexual relationship was aimed at pointing to the bigger relationship. Your, your sexual relationship will eventually end. One of you will die and you will become old. But our relationship with God will last beyond death. So keep your eyes on that is the real thing. Okay. Christian single people. Jesus asks you to follow him in embracing the gift of celibacy until such time as he gives you a spouse. And it takes courage to embrace that gift because everything around us, maybe everything in us, screams out, you cannot be fulfilled outside the context of a sexual relationship. Don't believe it for a minute. It's a lie. It's the bait. Was Jesus an unfulfilled human? You cannot confess the creed we just did and believe that. He was single, and for the sake of mission, he was single and celibate. And the Bible uh, presents him as the absolute pinnacle of what it means to be human. And you must understand that every single person who follows Jesus, we we will be like him one day. There is no marriage or giving in marriage in heaven. We will all of us be celibate one day. And therefore, when you hear that you can't be fulfilled as a single person, um, that's the hiss of the serpent. You name it. It's the hiss of the serpent. Don't fall for it. Look at Jesus Christ. Jesus is making you like himself. He is training your soul to be about giving rather than taking. And you will be assigned to others of the freedom that is available in Jesus Christ. We need you. Jesus has given all that he is to you. Give all that you are to him. Okay? All right. It's time to be done. And there's a whole lot more, isn't there? And uh, like I say, it, um, you... You try to avoid one cliff, you slam into the other. So this could have brought, this could bring up all kinds of things. Um, can we talk about it? Please don't stay, don't keep things secret. Please don't go it alone. Talk about what's going on with a mature Christian. And above all, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He's the one that makes sense of it all. And he's the one who sets you free. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.